A number of years ago, when I was serving as an elder in a different church, I became friends with a man who was thinking about joining our church. He and I had shared a number of common interests, and we would go to lunch and enjoy talking about these different interests that we shared together. We, we also had the opportunity to read through the church's statement of faith, the church covenant, both of which he affirmed entirely, and then I had the opportunity to do a membership interview with this man. Yet at the conclusion of the interview, he and I both realized that he had a sin pattern in his life that he was finally unwilling to let go of. He knew that he was supposed to give that sum up, that sin up, yet he wasn't convinced in his mind that he wanted to give it up. And therefore, I suggested to him, why don't we pause on this membership interview before I recommend you to the elders to recommend you to the congregation for church membership. Now, just as a side comment, let me just say, I'm not saying you have to completely stop sinning before you can join a church. The difference between a church member or a Christian and somebody who's not a church member or a Christian, as one Puritan said, is that a Christian or a church member is somebody who is determined to take, probably heard me say this before, to take God's side against their sin rather than sin's side against God. So when they do sin, they repent of it and they fight it. Anyhow, back to my story. My, my friend agreed with me that he should hold off in joining the church because, and he was very honest, he wasn't, as I said, convinced he wanted to fight against this particular sin in his life. Uh, he and I continue to meet over the coming months, even for another year or so, to discuss spiritual matters, to discuss our common interests, even to discuss his sin, and for me to challenge him to come out of his sin. Yet little by little, over time, his posture towards me changed. I could sense that he was growing colder, wandering further from the truth, opposed to me, opposed to the Christianity that I pointed to in Scripture. It was clear to me that his sin was truly sort of taking over his life, and he was wandering into a world of that sin, a world in which he was very much living in opposition to what I was preaching, the Bible, even to Christ. Finally, one day, he and I sat down for coffee, and he said to me, Jonathan, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. Or at least I'm not the kind of Christian you are. I knew he was right. I agreed entirely. He sounded a lot like author and one-time pastor Josh Harris, who many of you would have heard of when, when Josh Harris renounced Christianity I remember him saying, yeah, I just, I just can't believe that stuff anymore. I'm not sure how I've worked it all out. I haven't worked out this whole Christian thing. I, I just know that I can't quite believe that because that, that's been opposed to me. That's been oppressive to me and who I am. I finally need to figure out and discover and live for who I am. That was very similar to what my friend was saying. Now, maybe you've had a friend who likewise stopped calling themselves a Christian. Maybe they stopped calling themselves explicitly, saying, I am no longer a Christian. Maybe they've done that. Maybe they've more functionally or effectively renounced the faith, not so much with their words, I'm not a Christian anymore, just but more by how they are living. Well, when these things happen, what do we make of it? We process it. How should we proceed? And of course, this is not just an issue to work through when a friend or family member leaves the faith. Maybe it's a personal issue for you. Maybe you are wondering about leaving the faith. Maybe you wonder if you really still believe all that stuff. And of course, it's not just a personal issue. 
There are larger society-wide trends that garner media attention. According to one Gallup poll, 35% of people who have grown up in the church in the United States no longer attend. Pollsters call this category the de-churched. By one report, that's 50 to 60 million people over the last 25 years. That is a lot of people, 50 the 60 million people who have an individual story, somehow, some like my friends. Yes, I, I was that, but I'm not that anymore. Whether they say that with their words or just their actions. Lots of reasons are giving for being de-churched, according to this Gallup survey, from I preferred to worship on my own, to I'm not very religious, to I don't like organized religion, to I don't have the time, to I don't like being asked for money. Or maybe you've heard of the term ex-evangelical. You like the term evangelical, but ex, coming out of ex-evangelical. It's grown in popularity over the last few years. Among those who call themselves ex-evangelical, you're more likely to hear accusations against the church against Christians, stories of pastoral misconduct, disqualification, stories of corruption and racism and sexual abuse and sexual abuse cover-up, stories of hypocrisy and misogyny and discrimination against LGBTQ or stories of letting ourselves be overrun by partisan politics. And people will point to these things and say, that's, that's why I'm not one of them anymore. I'm not a Christian. So again, what do, what do we make of these departures from the faith at a personal level, at a society-wide level? If, as Peter says, judgment begins with the household of God, we have to admit that Christians and churches have been guilty of racism and corruption corruption and sexual abuse cover-up and hypocrisy and pastoral misconduct and more. And we shouldn't merely admit this as a yes, but, in which all of our emphasis is on the but. No, we should stop and look at those things squarely in the face and meditate on them and ask ourselves what action is required because of them. We're Christians. We confess sin. We don't have to defend ourselves anymore. We're here to defend Christ, not ourselves. There are a number of books that I'd be happy to discuss with you that might be helpful in considering some of these kinds of historical sins that Christians and Christianity and churches have been participant in and complicit in. Good things to discuss and talk about. Finally, that's not what our text about, not what our sermon is about this morning. The Bible, even as it calls us to look at those things squarely in the face and to, and to talk about them and think about them, and insofar as if you, if you ask the average person on the street or ask the average de-church or ex-evangelical, why have you left the church? Why have you left Christianity? That's what the need to about that too. At the same time, the Bible, our text this morning, asks us to look through those things and to see there are always, always deeper spiritual realities at play. Finally, we're dealing with the realities of heaven and hell. Not just this or that given historical circumstance. Finally, we're de dealing with eternal things the weightiest things of all. And that's where our text asks us to look. Our text is 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 23. Please turn there. You'll recall that whenever I'm asked to preach, I just kind of take the next passage in the book of 1 John. So a number of months ago, I, I preached the previous section of 1 John, and there John asked us to talk about the moral test and the love test for whether or not we are Christians, do we live this out with our lives? Are, are we showing love? 
indicate that we are Christians. This week, he, he looks at a third test, the truth test. Are we really believing what Christ would call us to believe about who he is? Chapter, 18, uh, chapter 2, verse 18. Children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son. Who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, he's addressing them here as children, both to register his own affection for them, as well as to indicate that he is further along in the faith, and he's calling them to grow up into his deeper understanding, his more mature understanding in the faith. And then he affirms it's the last hour, which is the kind of language the biblical New Testament authors use to indicate the time in between Christ's resurrection and ascension and the giving of the Spirit and his coming again. These are the last days. This whole area that we era we live in are called the last days by Jesus and Paul, or the last hour by John. And from there, John seeks to comfort this congregation with two expectations and four doctrinal truths. That's, that's the outline for my remarks. Two expectations and four doctrinal truths. Truths. Kids, what's a doctrine? A, a doctrine is a statement of what we believe as Christians. Principles of what the Bible teaches. We sum them up in a, in a concise phrase or sentence. And John gives us two expectations and four doctrinal truths, which should help us to know how to process, how to think about when our friends or family members depart from the faith or when we ourselves are tempted to depart from the faith. Expectation one, expect opposition to the faith. Expect opposition to the faith. Verse 18 again, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. John is the only biblical author to use that language of Antichrist, though the idea is suffused throughout the New Testament. What, what, is, what is an antichrist? I, I, one child who I know wondered, oh, does that mean like the ant of Christ? She asked. Uh, great question. Notice here it's spelled A-N-T-I, meaning against or instead of Christ, a false Christ or against Christ. And, and it refers to this, the antichrist, as, as if perhaps this final end of history false substitute Christ that may be coming. But then it refers, you see in the verses, to many anti-Christs, many of those who are against Christ that we need to expect and should expect because it's the last hour. I think of Jesus' words in John 16. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away, said Jesus. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour... He says, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do all these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Now John, in this letter, like Jesus in the Gospel wants his readers, wants us to remember that when the hour of opposition comes, he promised that hour. Why? 
simple as Jesus says. He doesn't want us to fall away. The biblical authors want us to expect opposition. For any of the children or or teenagers in the room, or, or anybody here who's visiting as a guest and you're considering Christianity, let me tell you to it, let me tell it to you straight. Christianity promises opposition. Count that cost. Christianity promises, Jesus, the Apostle John, promise opposition. It is to encounter anti-Christs, those who are against Christ. Here's what's interesting about these verses. Notice where the opposition is coming from. The opposition, look at verse 19, is coming from inside of the church. It's those who were among us. Paul says in verse 19, or John says in verse 19, that were the antichrists of verse 18. The opposition to Christ began inside the church. There are church members and church leaders and Christian speakers and Christian writers and Christian teachers who are in fact anti-Christ, against Christ. Now, if you say that in any number of Christian spaces today, you will be scolded for your lack of love and tolerance. But isn't that exactly what these verses are telling us? And the opposition will come in many forms. Sometimes it will sound like an explicit charge against the church's doctrine, as we'll see momentarily in verses 22 and 23. Sometimes it will sound like a charge against this church's morality or Love, which eventually morphs into a disavowal of its doctrine. Well, if you live that way, I surely can't believe that stuff, said Josh Harris, said my friend. One form or another, we can expect opposition to the faith, to Christ, inside the church. I was emailing a young man from another congregation in response to an article I had written in which I had referred to wolves in the church while among some who, while claiming to oppose abuse and racism, which we certainly must and should do, also use the occasion to oppose right doctrine. And he extremely bright and capable and compassionate young man was offended by the fact that I had suggested there might be wolves in our churches who intend to change our doctrine. And as he talked, my first thought in response to him was, I appreciate your compassion. You can never, ever be an elder of a church. Or never mind being an elder. Don't you know that as a Christian, your job is to show compassion, yes, but your job is also to guard right doctrine. Every elder, every member of the church is called to guard right doctrine. Maturity, Christian maturity entails simultaneously accounting for our own sin and showing compassion to those who have been hurt and guarding good doctrine. To put it another way, we must fight to live up to our doctrine where we fail to do so. We must not change our doctrine. We must fight to live up to our doctrine where we fail to do so. We must not change our doctrine, but fight for it. Giving you two hands. Got to do both. Okay, so expectation one is that people will oppose us inside the church. Expectation two is to expect departures from the faith. Expect departures from the faith. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. 
Uh, most of you know that I work for a Christian ministry called Nine Marks. We once had an administrative assistant who decided over the course of a weekend that he no longer believed that God existed. He became a full-fledged atheist and announced it to the congregation. It happens. Even inside of Christian ministry. Uh, let me speak to the teens again. The kids. Maybe you know a number of people who, a number of friends who would consider themselves Christians, count themselves Christians over the coming years. I promise you, you will see, most likely see, a winnowing. And I don't want you to be surprised by this. Some who call themselves or think of themselves as Christians now will not think of themselves or call themselves Christians later. This will happen. Do not be surprised. Expect that. Jesus and the Apostle John told us, warned us, prepare for that, to expect that. And, teens, don't let yourself be winnowed. Don't let yourself be pulled astray. Think of the parable of the soils, where seed is thrown into four different kinds of soil. Jesus explains the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not be believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock have no root. They believe for a while. In time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they go on their way. They're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. It's going to be more gradual, more subtle. And as for those in good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. I remember sitting at a lunch table with a guy called Doug, and Doug called himself a Christian and he attended church. But based on his descriptions of it, I believe it was a prosperity gospel church. And Doug and I met regularly over a course of a couple of years to talk about the Bible read through the book of Mark, and I remember we got to this section, and at this point, to me, Doug was looking less and less like a Christian, and we read this passage, and I said, Doug, which of these four soils would you say is you? And Doug, gratefully, wonderfully, was an honest person, and he said, yeah, I'm probably that rocky soil or the thorny soil. I think of the Christians I knew in youth group in high school. Or I think of their parents. And so many of them have fallen away. So many of them no longer walk with Christ. Why does God allow this? Why does he let people have tasted the heavenly gifts walk away? I, I don't know. Maybe is to let us see what we really are. Maybe it's to let us see, apart from His grace, we would all do that. I know myself. And apart from the constraining, holding, preserving grace of God, I would go. We would all. Lord, if you don't save me, I won't make it. I won't persevere. I, I, I see testimonies, examples all around me. Wise enough to see, yep, that's me. Oh God, please save, please preserve, please keep. Is this what your heart cries out, Christian? Or are you more like the Pharisee that says, thank God I'm not like that man, that tax collector there. Yet not only are we told to expect it, John gives us four doctrines for seeing beyond the surface of things, for giving us a kind of spiritual x-ray vision to see what's happening from God's own perspectives that we and set the eyes of our hearts in the right place. 
number one, learn, number one, the doctrine of the invisible and visible church. Learn the doctrine of the invisible and visible church. These verses tell us there is a difference between the visible and the invisible church, between the visible church, the the church that we look out and see with our eyes, and the church as God sees it in heaven. Look at verse 19 again. And if not a pew Bible, maybe underline the pronouns, the they's and the us's in this text. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. By the standards of Western inclusivity, this is not a very loving or tolerant verse. This is a culturally offensive verse. There is a they who does not belong to us. At one point, they belong to us, but they showed themselves not to belong to us by leaving. They shared our earthly company, said John Stott, but not our heavenly birth. And so we strive in our church membership practices to ensure that the visible, what we see, the visible body of Christ, the visible church, reflects the true worshiping church in heaven. But also we know that on this side of heaven, these two things do not perfectly match. Some will go out from us and prove they were never really of us. Finally, only the Lord, as Jesus said in Second, Paul said in Second Timothy two nineteen, only the Lord knows those who are His. So, will people leave Christianity because they were legitimately hurt and sinned against by Christians or by those calling themselves Christians? Yes, they will. But will such departures show that they were never true Christians in the first place? Oftentimes, yes. We don't want to downplay the significance of Christian sin or the sin of those who would call themselves Christians. We will give an account to the Lord for our sin and woe to the one who causes these little children to stumble, says Jesus. Better a millstone be tied around his neck and thrown into the sea. This is a big deal. We need to hold on to our responsibility. At the same time, we must hold on to God's sovereignty in these things. God will usually, eventually use one thing or another, whether the sins of Christians or the sins of fake Christians or something else, to show who truly belongs to Him. A real Christian will persevere to the end, even when sinned against by other Christians. They do not turn away from the church into the world. They turn to the object of the church's worship, to Christ. They hold on to what the Bible teaches about Christ, even if they have to leave this or that church for a better one. So friends, if you ever consider giving up in your Christianity, whether in part or wholly because of the sins of Christians, I I, I don't want to pretend those things don't exist. But let me affirm your personal agency right now and remind you that you have a role in this too. You are morally responsible too. Did you come to Christianity because of other Christians or because of Christ? Who is it finally you're worshiping? Other Christians or is it Christ? We will fail you. We will fail one another. I wish we wouldn't, but it will happen. Your fellow church members will fail to call. Check in. How are you doing? Your fellow church members won't show understanding. They won't understand. 
you will see them sin hypocritically. It will happen. Finally, you're not here for them. You're here for him. He is the one we worship. He is the one who would have come to live the life that we can't live, haven't lived, don't live. He is the one who died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, not, not your fellow church members. He is the one you must hold on to in all of this. He is the sinless one. He is the Savior. Don't abandon Christianity. If you do, it would show that you never truly knew Christ. You think you did, but you did not. They went out from us. They weren't really of us, says the text. Here's another heavy reality. Some wolves the Lord does allow to remain in the church to the end of their lives. I think of Ravi Zacharias and his terrible and treacherous abuses and assaults against women, which were not broadly exposed until after his death. He was not, as in these verses, somebody who went out from us. He remained in us until the end of his life in that regard. He remained in the visible church, even though we have little to no reason to think that he belonged to the invisible church, the true church. Lord, why do you allow this? Again, friends, I, I, I don't know. I, I've not shared the counsel of the Lord. I've not sat in his celestial chambers and considered these things. I trust he has considered these things. I trust he has good reasons, but I can't tell you I know why. I do know that Scripture promises such wolves will face a terrible judgment. Such things will not be eternally unresolved. God is just. You can be certain of that. He will make his justice plain with the Ravi Zacharias of the world. He will make his justice plain with the abuses of the Ravi Zacharias. Or let's, let's step back from kind of grand things like that to the subtler things. God will make his justice plain. We can be confident and certain of that in every jot and tittle of human life. Everything will be reconciled perfectly. All the scales perfectly balanced. In this life or the next, we can be confident. Christians, we put our hope in that. We trust that. We trust the God of the Bible who is just, even though he allows people to falsely represent him in the here and now in the church. This is a heavy reality, as I said. Why does he do this? Again, could it be that instead of merely pointing the finger at how others are or what they are like, we need to look more closely at our own hearts? Not their speck, but our plank. And recognize that to the endure the end, we too need the grace of God. Every single one of us. Sometimes I worry that we can create two classes of Christians, the really bad and the less bad. We use language like oppress or abuse, the abusers, the non-abusers. And these are important realities to discuss. There really is such a thing as an abuse. There really is such a thing as oppression. We need to discuss those. We need to name those. And when people are in positions of authority or power and they use that authority or power for oppression, for abuse, we need to talk about that. We need to go after that. God goes after that. He calls us to go after that. At the same time, let's not let those two categories blind us, confuse us as if those are the really bad or we're not the really bad. Friends, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all earned His just wrath. Not create a new Phariseeism as if we're not of them. God means to remind us we would all fall, we would all destroy, we would all oppress, apart from His grace. He constrains us, He keeps us. 
Now, to be clear, there's always a thread of a rift between the invisible and visible church. And so we work with our membership practices to care about these things. We, we ask you to set, sit through a number of membership classes. We ask you to do a membership interview. We ask you to sign a statement of faith and membership covenant in order to make sure that we all believe and are committing to the same things. We ask you when you leave this church to join another faithful gospel preaching church in some other place. We commit to that in our church covenant. We practice church discipline precisely so that when the Ravis are exposed, we remove them, we discipline them out of membership in the church. The Lord Jesus has given us a mechanism and we should practice it for the sake of love, for the sake of justice, in removing those who show themselves to be unrepentant, false professors. That is our job as church members, is to practice working to make the visible church, insofar as we can, match the invisible church. We I'm simultaneously telling you we're not going to do it perfectly, but we work at it. These are the blueprints. The house is going to look just like the blueprints, but they're still the blueprints. This is what we work to build. The church represents King Jesus, and so we aspire to represent him with a regenerate membership. So the first doctrine John teaches us, and I think in some ways the heaviest doctrine in this passage one of the heaviest doctrines in this passage is to understand the doctrine of the church and the difference between the visible and the invisible church. Number two, however, the doctrines, I'm going to give you two for one here, the doctrines of illumination and revelation. The doctrines of illumination and revelation. What does the Bible teach about illumination and revelation? Look at verses 20 and 21 again. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So they know that God's truth, because He has revealed it to to them through His Word. He's writing them, verse 21, because they do know this truth as it's been revealed. No revelation No knowledge of the truth. But not only that, God has illumined their hearts to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, to understand the truth of the gospel. We see this again in verse 27. Look there. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his Anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. They have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, this passage tells us. That's not an external on the body, oil on the forehead anointing. That is an internal on the heart by the power of the Spirit gift, anointing, that they would understand the teaching. Their hearts have been illumined. Light has come so they can see, ah, this is what truth is. Let me say very briefly, this is one reason I am a congregationalist. Every Christian has been anointed by the Spirit and possesses all knowledge necessary for salvation. You don't need to be ordained. You don't need to go to seminary. Because every one of us who is in Christ has been anointed by the Spirit. And the Spirit does not need a seminary education. The Spirit does not need to be ordained. And you have the Spirit, friends. Through the Spirit's illumination, we all know the truth. Or as William Tyndale put it, you are not anointed with oil in your bodies, but with the Spirit of Christ in your souls. Which Spirit teaches you all truth in Christ and maketh you to judge what is a lie and what is truth. Friends, you can discern through the Spirit what is a lie and what is truth by the Spirit. And to know Christ, Tyndale says, from anti-Christ. Now, I've noticed that today people often make much of our cultural differences and they point to our cultural differences to say that no one can really know what God is like or what the Bible teaches Because we can only speak from our own cultural perspective. Well, it's true that we are all coming from our own cultural perspective, and it's true that none of us can claim to know God or good doctrine exhaustively. The doctrines of revelation and illumination tell us that we can know God in Christ 
truly. We can underemphasize our cultural differences, but we can also overemphasize them. And we can use those differences as an excuse to deny biblical doctrines. Doctrines such as the doctrine of the incarnation, a third doctrine he brings us to. Number three, learn the doctrine of incarnation. Learn the doctrine of incarnation. Look at verses 22 and 23 again. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever has the Son can, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The Antichrist that John was concerned with in this text are those who denied that the Jesus, the man, who they would have affirmed was born in the flesh and died in the flesh, was the Christ or the Son of God. God might have filled him with divine power for a season, these false teachers would have taught, but they would have denied that Jesus, the man, and the eternal Son were the same person, one person comprised of two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. They would have denied that. They would have denied the doctrine of what we call the incarnation. Uh, Notice, in other words, that John wasn't indicting people as being antichrist amidst disagreements over second-tier doctrines like baptism or whether or not a woman can be a pastor. He was not calling out the Antichrist because of third-tier doctrines, doctrines that we can agree on and be members of the same church like the nature of the millennium. No, John has his sights set on what we call first-tier doctrines, doctrines that are constitutive to the gospel, the gospel or, or what's necessary as part of the gospel, such as the doctrine of the incarnation. Christians will disagree. Good Christians will disagree on these second and third tier issues. But these first tier issues around the gospel, that makes you for Christ or against Christ. I understand there's other conversations we need to have and the importance of second tier doctrines and how second tier doctrines protect first tier doctrines. That's a longer good conversation to have. Nonetheless, let's be clear. John has his sight set on first-tier doctrines here. Now, to an imp- another implication of the fact is that we can call Islam antichrist. Muslims deny Jesus is God. Sometimes theologians debate whether or not Christians and Muslims worship, in fact, the same God. We both call him God, so is it the same God that we worship? I would say that is a ridiculous debate. Look at verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Just because you have two people named John or three doesn't mean they are the same John. Just because we have two people called God doesn't mean they are the same God. If you deny Jesus is God, Anyone or anything you refer to as God is not God of the Bible. You got to remember, I'm saying this is an implication. Remember, John's concern began with those inside the church who denied that Jesus was fully God, fully man. For starters, that certainly must mean we watch out for any who would call themselves Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses who would call themselves Christians but deny that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, More positively, members of Chevrolet Baptist Church, it means we need to study the doctrine of the Incarnation. Why is it important that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Why why do we need to emphasize and understand both of those things? Why is that significant to salvation and to our faith? Well, among other things, the fact that He was fully man tells us here is a man like us whom we can emulate and follow and who was able to live the perfect life that we too are called to live so that he could be a sacrifice for our sins, representing us as one of us. The gospel depends on the fact, our salvation depends on the fact that he was fully man. But he was also fully God. He 
could not have lived as he lived apart from being God, as Israel proved and Adam proved, as we proved day after day. We finally needed God to come and live the life that we were called to live. And finally, we needed God to pay the penalty for the wrath against us. Our salvation depends on the fact that he is fully God. The fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man is crucial to our faith. It is the one who is the true satisfaction of our souls, the one who is the source of all of our hope, which brings us to the fourth doctrine. This passage gives us learn number four, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Learn number four, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Look back at verse 19 again. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Those who are genuinely Christians will continue. They will continue with us. Theologians refer this to this as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. You must endure to the end to be saved, and true Christians will endure to the end. Enduring to the end is the final and grand mark of a Christian. Think of Jesus' words in Mark 13, 13. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. Friends, you must continue to the end to be saved. Those who fall away, said John Calvin, have never been thoroughly imbued with the knowledge of Christ, but only had a slight and passing taste of it. Now, does the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints mean you must endure to the end or that God will preserve you to the end? Yes. You must persevere to the end. And if you are His, God will preserve you to the end. Both are true. Listen to Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, work it out. Got to do it. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We must work to persevere even as God promises to preserve us. If you abandon the faith, God will abandon you. And God will himself keep and preserve those who are his. And the older I get, the more I realize, the more I discover that the real test, the real lesson of the Christian life is endurance. It is perseverance. Learning how to endure all the trials and troubles the world throws at us. And, and in many ways, friends, I'm here from the middle age of the land of 48. To tell you, it doesn't get easier. Some things get easier, some things get harder. And to my brothers and sisters in here who are on further yet lands than me, 50s and 60s and 70s, I, I trust you can affirm me in that. The grand lesson of the Christian life, the grand test in many ways is patience and perseverance. Christianity is a marathon, not a sprint. How do we do that? Well, look at the last sentence of our passage. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. How do we endure to the end? By looking to Christ. By abiding in Christ. If you look to Jesus, if you hold on to Him, you will have the Father also. You will have God. To hold on to Christ is to hold on to God. Let me address the children and the teens and any visitors here again this morning, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. God himself entered our world as the God-man. It sounds crazy, but it is true. God loves us that much. I'm coming to you, he said, and became fully God and fully man. And Jesus came to show us God, and Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sin. And Jesus came to defeat the penalty of sin, death, by rising from the grave. Children, teens, visiting friends, look to him. Hold on to him. 
you have no other hope than him. Let me address the members of the church. Nearly all of us, if not all of us, will be tempted at times to abandon our Christianity, whether dramatically in some theatrical announcement, I'm not a Christian, or more likely, quietly and unconsciously, a slow drifting, a slow ebbing away. Brothers and sisters of Chevrolet and Baptist Church, amidst the waves, amidst the turmoil, amidst the long, quiet deserts of despair, to whom else shall we turn? the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no other hope than Him. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Look at page 6. Sing with me right now. Let's sing verse 1. Verse 6. Part of looking to Christ. All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the one who deserves all our praise and worship because you came as the God-man living the life that we couldn't and dying the death that we needed to die and painting the penalty for our sins and rising again. And so we give you all thanks and praise. Father, help us not to sin against one another, but when we do sin against one another, help us to forgive one another and look to you. We pray this all. In Christ's name, amen.